Our guest today is Carrie Clark. She's an RN. She's an advanced holistic nurse board certified and a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. Carrie is the nursing program director and chair of the medical cannabis certificate program at Pacific College of Health and Science. And Dr. Clark has been a nurse since 1994 with experience in medical surgical, pediatrics, psychiatric, home health, hospice care, and parish nursing settings. Dr. Clark has written many publications on diverse topics ranging from integrating holistic modalities into nursing curriculum to the oncology nurse's role in working with medicinal cannabis patients. She's presented to hundreds of oncology and holistic nurses regarding how they can best educate, coach, and support medical cannabis patients towards safe and effective use of medical cannabis. Dr. Clark is the immediate past president of the American Cannabis Nurses Association, and she is dedicated to educating nurses and patients around the endocannabinoid system, homeostasis, and the safe and effective use of cannabis to support healing. She's the editor of the best-selling Cannabis, a Handbook for Nurses, from, published in 2021 by Walters Kluwer. And Carrie, uh, it's an honor to have you here and, and being able to do this uh, from so far away. We're, I'm in San Diego. You're in Maine. That's about as far as geographically we can get in the U.S. And, um, but yet we meet every week in our academic affairs meeting. And so I feel like uh, we have a, a nice working relationship. And I'm so excited to, to uh, hear from you uh, about your expertise in this field. Um, so Carrie, you're a nurse by training and trade and an educator and an author what got you interested in, in learning about utilizing cannabis therapeutically in your own practice and in creating an entire program around it? Yeah, well, I am also thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And cannabis is my favorite subject to talk about. <laughs> so um, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here um, with you today. So what got me interested? Well, I was uh, supportive of medicinal cannabis um, when I lived in California. Um, and at some point there, we moved up to Northern California and lived in Sonoma County, uh, mm -hmm. and all of our neighbors grew cannabis outdoors. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I think patients could grow something like 26 plants each. Okay. So come October during the harvest time, the whole neighborhood would have this very interesting smell of the <laughs> terpenes coming off of the cannabis plants. Um, and we were probably the only people in the neighborhood who were not growing cannabis um, and then I moved to Maine and Maine has a very high per capita use of cannabis. It's right behind California. It's the second highest per capita use. And I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't smell it anywhere. Of course, the growing season is much shorter outdoors. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it. Like when you go into San Francisco or Los Angeles, there are storefronts for medicinal cannabis. Didn't see anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of fell off my radar a little bit. And then, uh, I was teaching at a university here in Maine. And the students that had a holistic nursing club uh, brought this doctor to speak, Dr. Dustin Sulak. And some of you that are familiar with the medical cannabis world will have heard of Dr. Sulak, but he came to talk about something else. And then we invited him to come back and talk about medicinal cannabis. And he explained the endocannabinoid system. And I went, oh my gosh, now it all makes sense about how cannabis works in the body, why it can work for something like nausea during um, oncological treatments, to helping with Parkinson's symptoms, to 
um, supporting patients that are suffering from seizures? Like, how does it work with all that? And once I understood the endocannabinoid system, I just became so fascinated and started sort of studying on my own. Uh, Dr. Sulak told me about the American Cannabis Nurses Association. So I joined that right away um, and just really started down a path of one, educating myself, and then two, really taking leadership and advocating for patients. Uh, once I understood how it could help patients, I really felt, I shall even say, sort of ethically obligated and really called to make a difference here. So interesting, interesting. So for, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the endocannabinoid system, but for those who aren't, or maybe are just exploring or interested in this topic, can you give us a bit of a primer on the endocannabinoid system? In yeah, how well, it, how it works, you said it can work for multiple things. And, and we know this. So give us a give us a bit of a, a background on it. And and what it does in the body. Yeah, so it is a really complex system. We could talk about it for the whole podcast and still not get through it all. Right. <laughs> uh, in that textbook that I'm editor of, Cannabis, a, a Handbook for Nurses, mm -hmm. that has a full 75 chapter page on, or 75 page chapter uh, mm -hmm. that people might find really interesting if they wanna go more in depth. And there's plenty of stuff on the um, web about it too. So uh, all mammals and actually animals that aren't mammals too, some of them, uh, have this amazing system in our bodies called the endocannabinoid system. Um, and it is responsible for homeostasis. And it's at the cellular level and it's composed of receptors and enzymes and it really helps us with homeostasis. So every body system that you can think of has these endocannabinoid um, system receptors in it. And they're responsible for kind of like checking out what's going on and um, releasing our own endocannabinoids. So our bodies are pretty incredible. They make these substances that are kind of like cannabis and kind of like the substances that are some of the substances found in cannabis called anandamide and 2-AG. Um, and they help to keep us in homeostasis, but we don't store them. They get broken down. So we have these enzymes that break them down. Uh, and um, it's, again, it's a very complex system. Um, but once I found out that, wow, our bodies make these cannabis-like substances and they help us stay in homeostasis. And if for some reason we're not making them or they're not being effective, we might get sick. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, we may need to sub, you know, uh, supplement with exogenous cannabinoids. And we can find those in the cannabis plant. Um, that also are in other plants as well. Um, but we tend to think of cannabis is one of the main sources for supplementing. So we kind of sometimes compare it to like the diabetic really needs insulin in order to um, function well and um, to stay in homeostasis and to not get sick. And so some people may have an endocannabinoid deficiency. They're not making enough of their own cannabinoids. It can affect the immune system. Um, and then they may, may need to supplement with um, some endocannabinoid or exogenous cannabinoids mm -hmm. uh, to stay in homeostasis and to stay healthy and to be on a real true healing path. So we're making, we're making endocannabinoids all the time. Yes. And so I was reading some research recently about the runner's high, and I know we want to, I want to get back to the therapeutic use, but it would caught my it caught my interest because usually that was associated with endorphins and enkephalins. And can you speak to that a little bit? Like how does that, does that interface to the endocannabinoids and the uh, anandamide? And does that 
interface with the uh, enkephalin release and the endorphin release and the dopamines that we associate with aerobic activity. Right. Well, I think it's all, again, really complex system. Uh, we used to think that it was mainly endorphins that were mm -hmm. responsible for the runner's high, mm -hmm. but now we know that it's um, that blissful feeling that one might get with, we tend to think of it of sort of moderate to high impact um, aerobic type of activity. Mm -hmm. That's why we call it the runner's high is really from um, that blissful feeling is from anandamide. Mm -hmm. You may also though have that blissful kind of feeling like after a really good yoga session, sure. after um, massage, after acupuncture or osteopathy, mm -hmm. uh, any of those things, we have good evidence around them um, supporting our endocannabinoid system to release anandamide and to make us just feel really good and, and blissful. Um, and I'm a runner myself, and uh, I will admit that there is something just different about the running. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can go out and go for a walk for three or four miles, and I will feel really good, and probably some anandamide is released, mm -hmm. but it's really not comparable to when I do three or four miles um, actually running. So, mm -hmm. um, but again, very, very complex systems, um, but good to know that um, doing some exercise, particularly exercise that you enjoy and that you're doing sort of voluntarily mm. will help keep your endocannabinoid system functioning well. Uh, and you can enjoy that and also know you're supporting your health. So that's pretty groundbreaking to, to have made that shift. When, when did that happen in, in the research, in the literature, approximately, um, that the endocannabinoid system and the anandamide was really the part, I guess, part of the mechanism responsible for that? as opposed yeah, to just the endorphins. Yeah, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I know that I heard about it probably in the, um, probably after 2010, but it may have okay. been before then. I know that there's a great article called, um, it's by McPartland uh -huh. um, and a few other people, and it's called Care and Feeding of the Endocannabinoid System. Um, and that has some great resources on what can you do to support your endocannabinoid system to function at its fullest. So. Mm, interesting. And we also talk about that in the textbook too. So, um, the use of cannabis, it's long been stigmatized and obviously we're now overcoming this with states legalizing recreational use of cannabis. And obviously the medicinal use is so important. Um, how is how is incorporating uh, cannabinoid therapeutics into the mainstream healthcare systems across the country and maybe the world? How how is that going, and and what are some of the challenges still left with that? Yeah, well, I think people are definitely becoming more accepting of cannabis as uh, as a medicine and for recreational use. Uh, it's far less damaging than um, alcohol or or other drugs. Uh, so some people really look at it as a harm reduction tool, but there still is definitely some stigma to overcome, uh, sort of that reefer madness prohibition era. Mm -hmm. uh, I will even go so far as to say propaganda mm -hmm. uh, really sticks with us. Um, and particularly in our medical systems, we're still trying to overcome that. Mm -hmm. You know, veterans are a very vulnerable population and they still have issues with accessing um, cannabis and then also being able to be treated for PTSD or chronic pain or those kind of issues through the um, Veterans Administration. So mm -hmm. that's kind of an example of an area where we need to do more work. Um, there's also a lot of sort of systemic racism around cannabis. 
Um, so for instance, um, African-Americans or Blacks and um, Caucasians use cannabis at the same rates, but Blacks are 3.7 times more likely to mm-hmm. be incarcerated um, or have issues, legal issues around use of cannabis. Mm-hmm. So we still have a lot of work to do in this area. Um, there's a great book called Chasing the Scream, The End of the Days of the War on Drugs, okay. written by Johan Hari. Uh-huh. Uh, there's also a movie out that I have not seen yet. I think it's on Hulu um, that is based on this book. But what I love about this book, and we use it in our medical cannabis certificate program, is it really goes back through how do we get into this era of prohibition? Um, how did Anslinger really... Um, from that federal level, sort of create this era of prohibition? How does it affect people? So it gets into people's personal life stories. Uh, and what do we need, need to do to kind of get out of this era of prohibition? Um, you know, some, you know, we have Canada to the north of us that has uh, decriminalized and uh, regulated and legalized cannabis for both medicinal and adult use. That's also happening to Mexico, to the south of us. In Mexico, it's actually looked at as a human right Mm. to access cannabis because they recognize that we have um, an endocannabinoid system and we should have the right to care for it. Um, So I I think we'll get there. Uh, You may have heard that Cory Booker, Chuck Mm. Schumer, um, and I think the last name is Ren um, from Oregon, uh, Chuck Schumer, I think probably most people know is a Democrat from New York and Cory Booker, Booker is a Senator from, um, New Jersey. So they're all senators and they are coming together to really put together a very strong, um, federal bill, uh, that will address sort of the legalization and regulation that we need at the federal level that will also be um, really fair and really take an approach of social justice, mm-hmm. really look at how could we use tax money that's um, generated to help those communities, particularly BIPOC communities that have been harmed by cannabis prohibition. So mm-hmm. um, I think we're making some steps in the right direction. Um, I think, you know, right now there's just so much going on, uh, we're coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, some people are saying we have a crisis at our Southern border. So I feel like there's so many other things going on that, um, the issue of cannabis, um, legalization and legislation at the federal levels kind of keeps getting pushed down, Mm -hmm. but I'm hopeful that this year, particularly in the latter half of the year, we'll be making strides in this area. Um, are you are you going to be involved with some of that legislation, the nationwide legislation? Or? Uh, I, I would sure like to be. I have done some outreach um, with American Academy of Nursing um, and National Academy of Medicine. So we'll see uh, mm. what happens on that level. And then um, coming out in our nursing newsletter uh, that will be coming out in April, I did a little write up on that federal um, level uh, of legislation and ways to contact those three senators and they're uh-huh. going to our feedback. So even just a quick phone call, if, if you have suggestions or ideas, if you have some expertise in this area, or even as a lay person, but you, you know, there's certain things you would like to see, um, you know, give them a call and let them know they're there to represent us. And, um, you know, those of us that have the knowledge or the passion about this, we should be taking steps to help create change. Absolutely. 
I want to, um, you mentioned the, uh, the certificate program, but before, and I want to explore that a little bit with you for sure, because it's so important and, and broad and deep and um, relevant to, to the work we're doing with our institution and, and getting, getting this information out into the hands of healthcare professionals. But you're also, um, you're also presenting Cannabis Care 101 at our upcoming Pacific Symposium this year. And can you tell us, give us a bit of a, a peek at what, what are some of the things you're going to be covering in that? Sure. Well, in Cannabis Care 101, what I try to do is really kind of uh, give a broad overview and spark people's interest in learning more about medical cannabis, how it works in the body, and what sort of their role is around education, coaching, and advocacy for patient populations. So it'll include an overview of the endocannabinoid system, um, an overview of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So how does cannabis work in the body? Uh, looking at side effects and dosing issues and looking at you know coaching and motivational interviewing and then looking at the other things we can do to really support the health of the endocannabinoid system. Um, it address, and then of course, you know, how do we advocate and how do we address these issues of systemic racism? Um, uh, in in the um, medical cannabis arena and really uh, in general too out there in the whole healthcare world all of that kind of translates um, into this presentation so uh, I, I think it's a way for people to get sort of their feet wet uh, and to get excited about it uh, and to share some knowledge and to really kind of set a path and create for some people will be about, I need to create some goals around what do I need to do to further my education in this area. And mm -hmm. I really wanna be able to support patients in the proper and safe use of cannabinoid medicines. Mm -hmm. And for other people to be like, oh, now I feel so much more prepared to care for populations that are already using cannabis. Uh, and I won't feel, you know, so uh, sort of uneducated. You know, our patients wanna hear about this medicine from us. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study that was done in a, um, a large uh, medical center in Washington state where cannabis is legal, both medicinally and recreationally. Mm -hmm. uh, they looked at oncology patients, almost over 900 oncology patients. Uh, and something like 85% of them said, I want to know about medical cannabis and I want to know about it from my healthcare providers. That's where I want to get my information from. But only 15% ever got any information at all from their healthcare providers. So patient, meanwhile, the study also showed that about 50% of the patients were using medical cannabis at some point in their treatment, their oncological treatments. Mm -hmm. So we really need to take some responsibility and educate ourselves. And I really see this presentation as that first little stepping stone. Um, if you already have a background or you've been through our certificate program, it might be a nice little refresher. It might be a way to, you know, really kind of validate your knowledge and spark your enthusiasm again and be around people that are also interested um, in this topic. So, super. Um, a lot of people use cannabis recreationally. Still, they don't use it medicinally, or you could say they're self-prescribing a, a medicinal a medicinal right for recreational use. What are your thoughts on the recreational use of cannabis, and, and what are some of your thoughts about, um, you know, the long-term use, safety, um, age-related issues like teen use, and, and that kind of thing? Right. Yeah. So I think it's a another huge big topic. Um, I, you know, cannabis is, nobody's ever died from using too much cannabis. 
uh, once in a while I hear someone say somebody had a cannabis overdose mm. and it's like, no, they had too much cannabis and they had an adverse effect. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a very intense experience if somebody has too much cannabis. Mm -hmm. And that is one of my concerns that, that populations and people out there in the public are being educated around safe and effective ways to use cannabis, whether that's medicinally or recreationally. Mm -hmm. uh, and that they understand when they've had too much that basically what they need to do is try and stay hydrated, um, you know, given that they don't have any other issues going on and they're not a child or a teen mm -hmm. um, and rest and eat if they can and give it some time and, and you'll get, you know, if there's a way to get distracted, like listening to music or uh, watching a show, if they're able to do that, or, you know, having someone to be there with them to hold their hands through it. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely eating something is, is a good way to help with that. Um, and, you know, if they have a, a, a coach or someone around that can help them uh, if they feel that they've had too much. So sort of, you know, I do get concerned a little bit about some of the high, high dose um, THC medicines. I think we don't have a lot of really conclusive research in that area. I definitely have concerns around teen use, mm -hmm. uh, but if teens were going to drink or use some other drug, uh, I would prefer they choose cannabis instead. Uh, but there are some studies out there that look at, um, you know, first time incidents of um, psychosis uh, and cannabis use, particularly high THC use. But even those studies I have questions about. I wrote a rebuttal to one study that was published in the Lancet Psychiatry. I think it was published in 2019, um, where they looked at first time psychosis um, uh, incidents and cannabis use, and they saw a correlation there. But when I looked at the population, they also had higher use of other kinds of drugs and medications. Mm. And there was no evidence that the psychosis was lasting. Mm. Um, and so there were some issues with the study. They didn't look at any of the cannabis samples. So we do know with cannabis, there can all, it can also be contaminated with molds, fungus, and pesticides. Mm -hmm. uh, and there has been some linking of pesticides with um, first time, you know, with psychosis as well. So I think we just have so much more to learn about this with teen use. But one thing we do know for sure with teen use is that their brains are still forming. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to my teens about this too. You know, your brain is still forming. And so what we, and you also, if you go to a party and cannabis is there, you don't know what else is in it. Right. Um, there, you know, it could be sprayed with something else. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that issue of sort of safe access, but our brains are forming till we're well into our twenties. Now we know and age 25. So if people can delay use until they're, you know, well into their twenties, and I would say that goes for alcohol and other drugs as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's a great idea, uh, because we don't know much about it on, on the flip side to that also with teens that are getting more intense, um, treatments, like oncology treatments, cannabis should be a palliative medicine that is brought on early so that those teens are comfortable and that they can actually feel comfortable finishing their full realm of oncological treatment. So that's kind of that line between the rack and then the medicinal use. Yeah. Uh, for, for older folks, you know, I think, I think the important thing there is that they really start low and stay low on their dosing and go really slow. Mm -hmm. um, the book of the textbook, of course, talks about um, this medicine is a self titrating medicine. So really as healthcare providers, we provide patients guidance mm -hmm. and guidelines that have been published and that then they can follow those and kind of figure out for themselves 
you know, how, how do I use this medicine, whether it's for relaxation, which some people would think of that as a recreational use or to socialize more, mm -hmm. um, or to really use medicinally. And then there are some people that, um, uh, really say all, all cannabis is, is really medicinal because it impacts the endocannabinoid system. But, you know, I do think you can get to the point where, uh, people are using a lot of it a lot of the time. There are definitely adverse and side effects, um, increasing anxiety, increasing tolerance, so where it's no longer really effective. Um, cannabis is a biphasic medicine, so the more you use as well, the more risk you have for adverse or uncomfortable effects or growing tolerance. So um, with the geriatric, back to the geriatric population, um, you know, I, I worry a little bit about the other meds they're taking, um, getting up at night and maybe feeling dizzy. So they really need to be educated on, you know, the idea of the going low and slow with their dose increase, um, safety around getting up at night if they've medicated before going to bed, taking their time, sitting at the side of the bed before they get up to use the bathroom, mm -hmm. um, watching for side and adverse effects. Um, and then of course, taking what I would call cannabis breaks. So it might be one day a week that they don't use cannabis or a few days a month or every other month they take off a couple weeks and kind of taking some longer breaks to also kind of see where am I at now? Uh, and I think a lot of older people too, find that they can decrease some of their other medications mm -hmm. as their body kind of comes back into homeostasis, um, the actually the CBD in the cannabis plant. So a lot of people have heard of CBD and it also comes from hemp plants. And it's just one of over 100 cannabinoids that are in the uh, cannabis sativa plant. Um, but it gets metabolized by a liver enzyme uh, or a series of liver enzymes. And it can actually sort of get metabolized first. So whatever other medications the person is taking, might end up kind of waiting in the queue to get metabolized and circulating at sort of these higher levels. That's kind of one way to look at it. So people may need adjustments to their medications if they're using cannabis really regularly and including CBD. Mm -hmm. um, the website drugs.com, uh, you can type in um, cannabis and it will show you the 26 sort of major medications that cannabis interacts with. And a lot of times those are your you know, your sedative type of medications that you want to be careful with. Um, but then there's over, over 200 that there's sort of minor interactions with. And this is the idea of where having um, a cannabis care nurse, having a doctor, nurse practitioner as well, that is well-versed in cannabis care uh, for the elderly can help them make some good decisions around, um, will cannabis work well for them with their condition? Um, using that sort of dosing approach of staying low and going slow with increasing dosing and then knowing if there's going to be any side effects or anything they need to monitor for. Yeah. You, as you're talking, what's coming up for me is I'm thinking about if, if you're a nurse and you're educated in, in um, um, cannabis therapeutics, you're probably interacting with the patient who's got a, a, a really sound advocate for managing polypharmacy that we see in, in mostly geriatric patients, but could, could influence an entire patient population. We see this you know, in healthcare all the time, the, the, the mismanagement of pharmaceuticals for years. I mean, I just had a, I had a patient who had been on a, a um, I forget what medication it was, but she was 23. She'd been on it for 10 years already. 
it was like a, an Adderall or something, one of the, one of the ADHD medications. And that, and, and so, you know, if you're working, if you've got someone like you, who's educated in the use of um, therapeutic cannabis, that patient's lucky because they're looking at this interface between all the other medications and they're going, Hey, maybe you don't need this one, or maybe let's try the, the CBD only, or if that doesn't work, let's add some THC, right? And so that has a secondary positive effect to the patient population that help them manage this rampant mismanagement of, of pharmaceuticals. Well, yeah, and I would really look at the, you know, the cannabis care nurse who's not a nurse practitioner, but is a registered nurse, um, you know, really being an advocate and a coach with the patient. So uh, we would we would probably work with them to work with their primary care provider, and often their primary care provider is not well versed in cannabinoid medicine. So then you end up kind of educating that provider, yes. educating and coaching the patient, and you know helping to address things like polypharmacy, which is a huge issue in the United States. The average forty five year old American, this blows my mind, is on four prescribed medications. Unbelievable. That just blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, like, what are they on? Well, they're maybe on an antihypertensive because they have high blood pressure. Their cholesterol might be high, you know, our, what we call the sad diet, um, mm -hmm. right. So, um, and lack of exercise. So, and then whatever we have going on genetically and stress and all of those things. So, uh, they might also be on an antidepressant, um, and some, you know, a pain medicine, I don't know, but four prescribed medications by the age of 45 and 45 nowadays is just, it's not that it's not, you know, old so much anymore. Right. That's barely into middle age. And so yeah. that really concerns me that, um, that, that we're kind of at that level in our healthcare systems and the cannabis care nurse is also going to act as, um, as a coach, that's really a holistic approach. So we wouldn't just be looking at the meds and the cannabis. We'd be mm -hmm. looking at their entire lifestyle. So yeah. what their diet look like and what, what kind of using motivational interviewing techniques, what are you willing to change? What are you willing to add in, you know, fruits and vegetables, um, have some great components that interact and support with the endocannabinoid system, mm -hmm. uh, adding in those omega-3 fatty acids, because we all tend to have too many omega-6 fatty acids and the endocannabinoid system needs a balance between those. Our fresh fruits and vegetables have flavonoids in them um, and those support the endocannabinoid system. Um, looking at their stress levels, because the more we're stressed, the more we're going to be stressing that endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. So what are they willing to do around that? Can they start a little meditation that's daily or a little yoga practice? Um, and, you know, these things need to be sustainable and things that they hopefully will enjoy and keep doing. What are they doing for exercise? What are they doing to connect with others? How are their, how's their sleep pattern? Um, so we would really take a holistic approach and look at their goals and support them toward, uh, there's one group of cannabis nurses that does, you know, living their best life. Mm. And so, yeah, so the cannabinoids um, are just sort of one tool that we have. Um, and then we really take a holistic approach to support patients toward wellness. As you're talking, it sounds a lot like our, our master's degree in, in the health and human performance program too. And that interface between the cannabis program that you're involved with at, at Pacific College, um, that seems to blend really nicely. Can you tell us, um, give us, give us the 50,000 foot view of our cannabis program that we're offering and, and feel free to 
dive down below 50,000 feet too, but um, sure. for our listeners, yeah. Well, this program has, uh, we're going into our, we're, we're into our second year of offering the certificate program. Um, and it's been a great journey. Uh, I think the impetus really came about when the um, National Council of State Boards of Nursing defined six essential areas that all nurses need to be educated around um, the medicinal use of cannabis. It's, it's no longer okay to just say, I don't know, <laughs> or to ask, you know, we need to get knowledge from patients, but then relying on patients as the expert when we know they want information from us, you know, we really wanted to support folks in, in having that level of education. Um, and at the time I was president of the American Cannabis Nurses Association, which is a, when we started to develop the program, which is a 501c3 not-for-profit national nursing organization that is recognized by the Nursing Organization Alliance um, and is working toward cannabis being a subspecialty, medical cannabis being a subspecialty in the nursing profession. So, um, so we designed uh, three classes to really meet those six essential areas. So the first class is, um, and it's eight credits total. The first class is the endocannabinoid system and pharmacology. Uh, the second class is your clinical guidelines and practice. And then the third class is your capstone class. Uh, when we first started offering this, we really thought, well, nurses will be our, it's developed for nurses. And this will be our prime sort of target market a population that really wants this information. And then we found out, oh my gosh, the acupuncture students want this. Mm -hmm. The massage students want this. We're getting doctors of osteopathy, MDs, um, optometrists. Um, we've had, you know, so many people come through the program because they really want that baseline knowledge. So the idea is that when you get out of the program, that sort of 50,000 foot view is that you have sort of this beginning level of competency um, around some knowledge around the endocannabinoid system and pharmacology, how cannabis and cannabinoid um, therapeutics work in the body, how to support patients with motivational interviewing and coaching, um, how to educate patients, populations, and communities, um, and really kind of setting a path for oneself um, to continue their educational journey in this area uh, and to begin to grow toward expertise. Uh, we offered the program for about a year and had some great feedback. We've made some few changes along the way. Uh, we have some great qualified um, faculty members. Um, and uh, I think last fall, we decided to also offer the certificate to folks that didn't have that kind of clinical background preparedness. So we have now a healthcare track and a non-healthcare track. Uh, to get into it, you need to have an associate degree or higher. Um, and just some interest. You still take endocannabinoid system and pharmacology, but it's at a little bit uh, more basic level without having that advanced pharmacology knowledge. Mm -hmm. Still take a practice and, and, and a healthcare kind of clinical practice class where you learn about education and motivational interviewing. And then the capstone class is a little bit different. It tends to focus on business, mm. um, the cannabis industry. And um, so I'm really hopeful also that in the future, we'll be able to offer, um, you know, more continuing education classes in medical cannabis so that students that graduate from the certificate can also come back and get updates and be part of a learning community um, and share the knowledge and grow in that area. And I think, you know, we may also offer different kinds of certificates or eventually degree programs um, around cannabis science. So 
uh, I think there's um, a lot of room for growth in this area. Uh, and I think Pacific College really is set to be a leader around medical cannabis science. So, Absolutely. Well, certainly with your leadership, um, yeah, we're, we're counting on that. Um, what's the future look like for, for cannabis, uh, for both recreationally and, and therapeutically? What does it look like here in the yeah, U.S. So, or maybe even worldwide? Yeah, so I think, I think there's kind of the, the sort of different concerns and different exciting things happening. So the concerns, of course, are, um, you know, one issue is that as adult use comes in and recreational use uh, for folks that are 21 or over in many states across the United States, um, medical cannabis programs can be a little bit threatened by that. And some states want, don't really see the need for a medical cannabis program. They want to kind of mush it all in together and regulate them that way. So I think it's really important for us as providers to really advocate that there are still medical cannabis programs that people can still go see a doctor and get that certificate that shows they have a medical need that someday there may actually be insurance reimbursement for cannabinoid therapeutics. That's one step that we need to see. Um, and that we continue to do good research around the evidence base mm -hmm. for the effectiveness of, of medical cannabis. Um, so that's kind of one avenue. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine put out a report in 2017 that really looks at the levels of evidence uh, around medical cannabis and effectiveness for different um, disease or illness issues. Um, one thing we do know is that um, it, it is definitely effective for pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, there's, there's a lot of good reasons why. And if folks come to the symposium, I'll, I'll be talking about that. Um, but um, uh, you know, we still have a lot more research to do in these areas. And there are other countries that are kind of going off and doing that research and more kind of following, falling behind. Oh. So in the medical side, I think that's really important that we keep those state programs in place, that we work toward insurance reimbursement and that we're really researching um, the sort of next steps here and that we're educating healthcare providers. So NCSBN has that um, six essential areas that nurses need to be educated in. But as far as I know, no other healthcare professions uh, have adopted something similar. So I do see that as sort of one of the next steps that we figure out ways to get the endocannabinoid system included in your basic anatomy and physiology classes. And mm -hmm. then we start talking about it in our pharmacology classes. It makes it into those textbooks, which I'm starting to see. And that then we thread it across our curriculums. Um, and then that folks are really supported with um, learning how to motivate, you know, you'll use motivational interviewing and coaching. And I think, again, that's across all healthcare professions. And if you can think about it with cannabis science, then you can think about it uh, and cannabis care, then you can think about it sort of with every patient and it helps to really change the whole healthcare system Absolutely. on the record. Yeah, on the recreational side, um, concerns are sort of the public health concerns that people are educated mm -hmm. uh, and they understand the adverse and side effects, that they understand how to use and store um, the medication safely, um, and that they know how to access kind of what I would call safe medicines as well. Mm -hmm. um, and for geriatric populations, what we talked about earlier with the starting low and going slow with the dosing and then sort of teen prevention use. And then there's kind of the, um, um, the idea of sort of Wall Street, <laughs> right? right. 
these big companies coming in. So there's been so much suffering, particularly by BIPOC populations uh, during the prohibition era. And now these big sort of Wall Street type cannabis companies come in and those populations that suffered are still suffering, still incarcerated um, and still, you know, the whole the whole community is suffering from what prohibition has caused. So we need to find ways to address that. We need to find ways to support small businesses and BIPOC populations in being part of this sort of booming world of cannabis business as well. Mm -hmm. so I see that as something in the recreational world that um, really needs to be addressed in meaningful ways. And some states are doing it better than others. Um, so um, Illinois, so we, have a long, we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. Um, you know, it's a huge business and growing industry um, and there'll be huge tax incomes coming in. So really thinking about how, how that money is spent and how it can support um, populations that, that should be supported. So from a social justice and, and ethical perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we could talk all day on this and I know we, I wanna respect your valuable time. Um, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. I, we don't really get the chance to talk that much in our, in our normal weekly meetings. Right. Um, and and this, is, this has been really educational for me. I, I know it has been for our listeners and I want to encourage everybody to, you know, come and learn more uh, from you and the program you created, uh, sign up for our certificate program, come check us out at the symposium and hear Carrie talk in person. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for everything you do to move the needle forward in healthcare and uh, specifically with uh, in this subject. And I really appreciate you as a colleague yeah, thank you so much for taking your valuable time today. Well, thank you, Greg. It was a great pleasure. And I, I hope to see many people coming to join the certificate program and joining us at Symposium and really kind of changing the world around education and cannabis care. Awesome. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay.